Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. A few minutes ago, uh, during our introduction time, we asked you to uh, greet one another and find out if there's something you didn't know about one another, the event in history that you would uh, want to be at. Uh, did you learn something? Did someone learn? Raise your hand if you learned something interesting or new about someone else this morning. <laughs> one person. No one else learned anything. <laughs> well, there you go. All right. Well, I'll tell you, the interesting event or life event that I wish that I could have been present at is uh, to be able to be there present when man walked on the moon. I think that would have been an incredible thing. And I know there's all these different conspiracy theories about like if I could have been in the film room when they pretended like someone walked on the moon or something like, even that would have been exciting. but like, I just think that would be a pretty neat thing to be able to be there. Like, uh, now there's a number of movies that are kind of coming out, and and some of you were alive during this time frame, and I think that's fantastic to be able to just the excitement that went back uh, during that time of the Apollo race and the, and the race to the moon, and uh, like, to me, that's just not a time that I lived in, and so it's an exciting period for me to kind of look at. I did live in the shuttle era. You know, there's all these different uh, shuttles going uh, to the moon. And uh, I, I remember being in grade school and then in high school and there'd be all these different missions that would go and we'd all kind of gather around a TV in the early days and watch them take off. And then they got so common, uh, that wasn't necessarily the case. Uh, but there was one that I remembered slightly and I had to look up this week. In June of 1995, the shuttle Discovery was postponed, uh, not because of inclement weather, not because of mechanical malfunctions, but because woodpeckers had drilled 135 holes into the side of the space shuttle uh, while it was on the launch pad. Do you guys remember this? Do you you remember hearing about this? So 135 holes had been drilled by woodpeckers overnight on the side of the spacecraft before it was shot into orbit. And this is what they uh, said. Well, first of all, woodpeckers, if you have any issues with woodpeckers in your yard, why are they doing that? Because when they make that noise, they use that to be able to attract a mate. And so for some reason, this enormous rocket about to go to the moon was what the woodpeckers decided. And I think if I was trying to attract a mate, like that would be pretty good. Like I'd be like, listen, this thing is going to the moon. Isn't that pretty cool? Don't you want to be my girlfriend, right? So 135 different holes, and because of the way that they drilled the holes into the side of the thing, it was a particularly windy day uh, as they realized it, and so they tried to get up on scaffolding and fix it, and they couldn't. And so they had to wheel it back into uh, whatever the shelter is called, the hangar, uh, and work on it in order to do that. And so what, it, what they ended up saying uh, at the time, Bruce Buckingham was the, NS, the NASA spokesman, and he said, the little birds got the better of the big birds in this case. And they pulled the Discovery off the launch pad. It was a laborious, time-consuming procedure. Just the tractor alone burns 1,000 gallons of diesel fuel, making the round trip there and back. Those little woodpeckers, those little peckers, cost us a million dollars in just transporting the thing there, transporting it back. NASA had to pay a million dollars to fix the damages of woodpeckers on the space shuttle. But you didn't know that this morning, did you? So... How many of you, so it's a mistaken identity. I don't think that the, that woodpecker knew really what he was doing. Like, I don't think they're a smart creature by any means. Like he didn't say, man, I'm going to foil uh, their plan to go to the moon. They weren't sent here by Russia or anything like that. Like, I mean, it's just a woodpecker, mistaken identity, thought it would be a pretty good idea. Uh, 
How many of you in the winter have ever scraped the snow off of the wrong vehicle? Anyone ever done this before? There's a viral video, it's, it's a number of years old, but you can look it up. It's actually a German coffee commercial where the man comes out of the office and he is like a lawyer, he's got his briefcase and he's scraping off and, and wiping off the windows and clearing off all the snow off of this car. He goes through all the details and he's rubbing his hands trying to stay warm and trying to get all the snow off of his vehicle and then he takes his keys out of the pocket and bleep bleep and it's the car across the street. The lights underneath the hood of the car, and then the commercial says, you know, you know, need a cup of coffee type of thing. So that's one of my favorite. So look it up sometime. It's fun. It's a, just a neat commercial. Uh, when we were beginning Renewal Church, many of you know that I was the uh, planter that was sent out to plant Renewal Church, our church plant in North Tonawanda. I learned the story of uh, Jonathan Milton Peterson. It was one of those early days we got together. Uh, he's just one of the guys who is in our core team there as a church. And it's one of those times where you said, you know, can you just tell us something unique you don't know about someone. Tell us a, something you'd never guess about me or a story about me. And so he told this story, which I will never forget anytime that I see Jonathan. He's now 40 years old. Milton is his middle name, so he goes by Milton. He's 40 years old, but this uh, was when he was much younger. He was asleep in his car seat. I don't know if it was after church or after uh, going out to a restaurant, whatever it was, but his family was going on a family vacation, and so they decided to leave him in the car and pack around him. So they packed the car to the gills. They made sure that they got everything in the car. They were going to uh, Toronto, Canada, and uh, they made their way. They packed everything, left him asleep, packed everything up, and then made their way across the border. And somewhere in Hamilton, that area, or a little bit further up the road, uh, in those days there was no cell phones or anything like that, they uh, pulled over to a, a rest area only to realize that their car did not have Milton in the car whatsoever. He was asleep in the car in the garage back in Niagara Falls, uh, and there he was. And so they said that the story, as the story goes, they crossed the border, and actually when they spun the car around and came back home, it was the very same, because it was late at night, like one or two in the morning, uh, the same Border Patrol agent person at the checkpoint that had seen him going north saw him coming south, and they sheepishly had to tell him why they were racing south. And um, Milton uh, was uh, in the car. He did wake up and was able to get himself out of the car seat and was in the kitchen having a glass of milk when they got home. No harm, no foul. But mistaken identity, when we talk this morning, we're going to be looking at the differences between a rocket ship and a woodpecker are significant. The difference between the choice between the precious cargo going into one vehicle versus the other vehicle is a significant choice. And the distance we're going to talk about this morning between one mountain and another is tremendous. So if you've got an outline with you there in your bulletin this morning, there's a white sheet of paper in there. It's got the logo of the series on it. And the, the first thing I want to talk about this morning are two mountain peaks. We are in Hebrews chapter 12. If uh, you want to look and there's a Bible in front of you, you can grab that. It's a page 1264 in there if you want to find your way there. If you haven't been with us for a while or if it's your first time here, we are in a, a series that's carrying us through Hebrews. And we're talking about the race. And there's all of these different allusions to uh, the race and chasing after and running and striving for. But in today's passage, in Hebrews chapter 12, there's going to be two mountains that we look at. Two mountains that play a prominent role in Scripture. 
And we're going to see them again and again, and it kind of points them out again here in this passage, is Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. These two different mountains play a prominent role, and they are very different mountains. I have never heard, maybe you have, I looked this week, I have never heard a song sung, a worship song sung about Mount Sinai. Never heard that. But I have heard a number of songs, a number of hymns that are written, plenty of them, about Mount Zion. You see, Mount Sinai is a place where Moses went up to meet with God. Mount Zion is a place where Jesus will come down to be with his people. Mount Sinai is located in the land of captivity. Mount Zion is located in the promised land. Mount Sinai is a place of fear and darkness and trembling, and not so in the land of Mount Zion. It is a place where the light never ceases. Mount Zion is a place of grace. Mount Sinai is a place where the law rules. Mount Sinai is a place of religion. Mount Zion is the place of the gospel. You see, really, these two mountains represent two different fundamental ways of thinking about how you relate to God. You have to relate to God in one way, in a Mount Sion way or Mount Sinai way. You're going to connect with God in one way or another. And the author of Hebrews wants to make certain that you understand the difference between the two and that you are going to relate to God in a Mount Zion way. That you are chasing hard after God in a Mount Zion way, not a Mount Sinai way. Because if you chase after God in a Mount Sinai way, you are going to find that things get really, really bad. You see, a Mount Sinai way is this. We obey, and therefore we are accepted. Modern day, we call this religion. Mount Zion says, I am accepted and I am loved by God, and he cherishes me, and therefore I will obey. That is Mount Zion. Two totally different ways of relating to God. The distance between one mountain and the other is tremendous. Will you read with us? Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 18. We're going to begin in verse 18. And here's your first fill-in to get you started. The mountain of religion. The mountain of religion. Mount Sinai. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched... And that it, it, excuse me, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who hear it begged that no further word could be spoken to them because they could not hear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. These verses summarize what we read in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19 of God giving the law at Mount Sinai before, before Moses goes up the mountain. And, and when he returns, we, we know from Scripture that he's going to return with the Ten Commandments. He's going to return with the law. But the instructions that he was given to give to the people was don't go anywhere near this mountain because God is going to demonstrate himself there. Don't go anywhere near it. Don't let your animals even touch the mountain. If the animal touches the mountain, then it needs to be killed so that it doesn't defile anyone else. Why would God reveal himself in such a terrifying manner? 
even Moses, who had, he had, remember he took off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground before the burning bush? It says even Moses was terrified. He had performed acts in front of Pharaoh. He had grabbed a hold of a live snake and seen it come back and be a rod, but yet he was terrified to go up to this mountain. This doesn't sound like a kind, grandfatherly God that we would want to crawl up into his lap and cuddle up with. It's a terrifying picture. You see, really, we should call this mountain religion mountain. It's an unapproachable mountain. There in Exodus 19, the picture that is drawn is you do not want to be near this place. Words that are being spoken give us the illusion that God is a holy an unapproachable God. Man, we're defiled sinners and cannot come close. Even the dumb beast, the animal, can't even come close to touching the mountain. At Religion Mountain, you can never get close to God. You will never be able to please God. It is a mountain of fear and a mountain of trembling. That is Mount Sinai. So a fearful mountain, Moses was terrified to go up there. How do you relate to God? Many of your friends, perhaps, friends who do not attend church, friends who have not been part of this body or another body of believers anywhere else, would, would say that they might be afraid to come to church. Oh, I, when I come into church, the, the earth will split open and swallow me whole. Have you heard something like that before? There's fear and trembling. This is an understanding of religion that has to do with what Mount Sinai represents. What's the motivation for religion? You know, one of the primary drive shafts of motivation for human nature, for human beings, is fear. I'm afraid that God won't love me, and so I behave the way I think that he wants to do. I'm afraid if I don't do it right, if I'm not doing it properly in God's eye, that God will reject me and that he will push me away. Fear is a powerful motivator. But think about it on the other side as well. You see, there is also this balance of pride and despair that comes with religion. And when I talk about religion, I'm not necessarily talking about church people. It's just the behaviors of religious practices. You see, someone can be very religious and be entirely secular in their motivation. Someone could be religious and not even be pursuing after a church or after a denomination, after religion. They could be putting their own uh, steps out there. They're going to chase after. But that same practice, that having a standard of living up to so that you can be accepted, that is religious behavior. And those laws, those practices, those rules to live by may be of your own making. They may be from a church, but they might be entirely secular in their entity of where they've begun. And these rules to live by are damaging. So what happens, wherever that list comes from, if you fulfill the list, if you actually live out the list, what happens is you and I, others, pat ourselves on the back. You say, you know what, I've I've got 10 out of 10 today. I feel pretty good. I've, I've lived up to all of these rules, all, and you, you begin to do what? You get prideful. And you, you begin to really start to say, you know what, I've got this thing figured out. I've got this religious thing nailed. And that pride starts to well up with you. Or the contrast. 
The contrast is you've had one good day, you've lived 10 out of 10 of your rules and regulations that you want to live by, and then tomorrow you get one out of 10. And that leaves you in what? That leaves you in despair to say, I'm such an awful person, or these rules are too high. I can no longer establish myself to be able to follow through and live by these set of rules and regulations and the law of whatever the religious practice is that you're pursuing. And so you loathe yourself. You think that you are worthless. You think that you are a failure because either you've made some mistakes to pull you away from that or that the law was just too high to fulfill. Religion leads to pride, leads to despair. Religion and suffering don't mix either. You see, religion in and of itself, at Religion Mountain, what really happens there is something that looks like karma, whether or not that's what you're pursuing, whether or not that's the religious tradition you're talking about. It looks a lot like karma. As long as you do what you're supposed to do, then you deserve a good life. As long as you follow the rules, as long as you play within uh, the box, as long as you stay between the lines, you will be okay and therefore you deserve a good life. You certainly deserve not to suffer. I certainly then deserve a better life than this other person that I see over here, which I feel like he's played outside of the lines. Then suffering happens. And many of you get angry with God. Wait, this isn't fair. I held up my end of the bargain. I played by the rules. I've got 10 out of 10, and why is suffering happening to me? Or maybe you get angry with yourself. Maybe you don't have it as together as you thought that you did. Must be I'm not working hard enough. Maybe I didn't get noticed living out these rules, these regulations. So it's a very bad spot to be in. You see, religion as a bottom line is simply an attempt to avoid our need for a Savior. The bottom line of religion avoids our need for a Savior. The gospel is offensive because at the root, at the baseline, we need a Savior because what you and I have done is so vile, our sin is so awful, that it meant that someone, Jesus Christ, had to come and die on the cross for your sins and for mine and had to go through a horrific death. And when he said, I did this for you in your place, and you and I look and say, no, my sin wasn't that bad. My sin wasn't that awful. Look at all of these things that I've done. Look at my body of work. It's pretty good. And the gospel flies in the face of that. It says, no. And it does not accept that. You cannot be good enough. I think that all that God wants is for me to be a good person. He says, no, you can't be good enough. You will not reach the goal that I have set. The only one who can do that is my spotless, blameless lamb, my son, Jesus Christ. You need Jesus. And if you try to approach Religion Mountain, Mount Sinai, without Jesus, you should be fearful. You should be trembling. You are in the face of an almighty God that Moses could not even look at. He had to shield his eyes, shield his face, and just being with him, he glowed from the very presence of God. He should be afraid of God outside of the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
That's the bad news. Here's the good news. In verse 18, it says, the author says, you have not come to this mountain. No, he says, you've come to a different mountain. Second fill in for you this morning, the mountain of grace, Mount Zion. The mountain of grace. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Grace Mountain. It says that the angels, thousands of angels, have come with joy. You want to circle that word joy or joyfulness. In the previous section, the word fear is what is put there. But in this section, we see joy. Grace Mountain. You know, Mount Zion is a spiritual place. Mount Zion does not have a geographical center. Mount Zion is not a place that you can go and visit. In Christianity, we do not have a geographical location where we can go and get closer to God. We cannot go and find our Mecca. We cannot come to church on a Sunday morning and be closer to God at this coordinate, at this address than we are in our homes and our living rooms. Do you understand that? No matter how many infomercials you see, no matter how many infomercials you see that you can go to Israel or go to the Holy Land or buy a little cross that has a little stone on it that has the, the dirt or the pebbles or the stone that Jesus walked on so that you can have that and pray with that, that is not going to get you closer to Christ. I have never been to the Holy Land. I have not ever been to Israel. I would love to go there someday, and some of you have. But it would be going so that it would be an informational trip only. It would be there so that I would understand what the Bible is about better, that I would understand what God is doing, not because I cannot be close enough to him as I am here. Do you understand that? We don't believe that, friends. But we live sometimes as if the only place that we have access to God, the only location that we can be close to God is in this room or in a special place, the Holy Land, or a special prayer closet or whatever that is. And those things are important to be able to help us focus, but they do not get us closer to God. We don't believe that. Because we come to the city of God, we come as citizens, it says. If you want to turn over, I'll read it to you in Philippians chapter 3. If you want to move quickly over there, Philippians chapter 3. Beginning in verse 17, Paul says this. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Paul says, look at those who are living as we do. Guess how they're living. For, verse 18, as I have often told you before, and I'll tell you again, even with tears in my eyes, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And this is what's going to happen. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is in their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Their mind is set on the wrong mountain. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. You see this need for a Savior comes up again? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who, verse 21, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. 
This morning in our membership class, our DNA sessions, we talked through that transformation. Be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what happens when we become believers, followers of Christ. That's what citizens of the holy city of Zion look like. I've heard this demonstrated before. Craig Rochelle is an author, and he talks about taking a Nerf football and cramming it into a glass or something of a different shape. You can just cram it in, and for a moment, that Nerf football takes the shape of, of whatever that glass happens to be. But if you take it out, what does it do? It pops right back into the shape of a Nerf football. That is confirmation, being conformed. What is being described here, what Paul talks about here, what we learn about in Scripture is not being conformed, being transformed. Verse 20, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be what? Like his glorious body. On Grace Mountain, our citizenship is in heaven. Find your way back to Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see this Mount Zion. It's a place of angels. Thousands and thousands of angels, it says, who are there to have a festival, to have a, a party, to, to sing songs and dance and, and blow horns. The, the songs that we hear uh, in the first section to be able to talk about Mount Sinai, it talks about the blowing of the horn. That is a, a horn of war. When Gideon goes to battle and he, he has all the trumpets of war and he's able to break the, 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 the pot jars and he has the fire and they each have a horn, each one of those horns symbolized a platoon or a, a company of warriors. And so when they blew 300 horns, it sounded like there was 3,000 or more troops that were ready to converge, 30,000 even. And that's the sound of the horn that is affiliated with Mount Sinai. But the music that is being played in Mount Zion is a different type of music. It's a music of celebration, music of singing and dancing and talking through and worshiping through their Savior and Lord. We see an assembly of believers. Interestingly, at Mount Zion, it talks about the firstborn. They're only firstborn at Mount Zion. In their culture, being the firstborn was incredibly important. Being the firstborn meant that you had the birthright. That meant that you had uh, access to all that the Father would give because you were the firstborn. And at Mount Zion, it says all are firstborn. You and I, children adopted into the family of God, are all adopted as firstborn. The church is the firstborn of Christ. Every believer of Christ is a firstborn. We come into the presence of God. We draw near to him. At Mount Zion and other places, God, God himself will wipe every tear from every eye at Mount Zion. Not so at Mount Sinai. You don't see that happening on that mountain. And then we come to Jesus. Why do we come to him last? When I make a list, I think of the thing at the bottom of the list is the, the least important generally. Wake up, read my Bible, go for a run. Kiss my kids, floss my teeth. For you dentists out there, I apologize. That's at the bottom of my list, okay? Flossing, sorry. But scripture is put together differently. Jewish writing and Jewish thinking is put together differently. Almost the idea of bookends. 
The most important things are often at the beginning and at the end. We see this often in the book of Psalms. If you read through Psalms, you'll be able to see kind of this trajectory that kind of flows in and flows out. That these are the most important things, or even the opposite direction. This is the climax of the passage. That's why we would see him listed last. This mountain, this Mount Zion, is sealed with the very blood of his own son. Verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, why bring up the blood of Abel? What on earth does this have to do with this Mount Zion? Remember Abel. Who is Abel? He's one of the sons of Adam. We've got Cain and we've got Abel. If you remember that passage from Genesis, we've got Cain and Abel. And, and Abel brings a more excellent sacrifice before God. And in his jealousy, what does Cain do? Cain takes him to the side and murders his own brother. And then God comes back through and he walks through the garden. Do you remember what he asked Cain? He says, Cain, where is your brother? Not that God is some forgetful old man who couldn't remember where maybe he was or couldn't have found his body buried out in the woods somewhere. He knew exactly where he was. He was asking Cain to identify what was going on. And Cain said what? He said, am I my brother's keeper? And God's response to Cain is, the very ground, his blood cries out from the ground. And what is it crying out? It's crying out, guilty, murder, sin. The blood of Christ cries out and speaks out a different word. It speaks out forgiveness. It speaks out sanctification. It speaks out, it is finished. So if you've got these two mountains... Why would you go back? Why would you want to relate to him in any other way? Well, there's two kingdom cities. We continue our outline. How many of you remember playing King of the Mountain? The best time to play is in the winter. I know that there's people from other parts of the country. I don't know why you'd play King of the Mountain any other time than the winter. Uh, particularly if you're at Target or at Walmart or somewhere with a large parking lot, every time that I go through that parking lot in the winter and you see that mound, you're like, man, I wish that I could play King on the Mountain on that hill. Occasionally there's like a shopping cart stuck in the middle of it, you know what I'm talking about? That's, that's a bad spot probably to be in. How does King on the Mountain work? You climb to the top of the mountain, you get to the top of the mountain. If you're the King of the Mountain, it's very difficult to unseat that king because he's at the top of the mountain and he can easily push you down and you tumble head over tea kettle down the mountain, right? But there's one weakness to the king on the top of the mountain. He has legs. And as long as you can get his feet out from under him, he's going down the other side of the mountain. So continuing with kind of the analogy of where things are at this morning, imagine yourself in a parking lot with two snow hills, two mountains, and you've got kings and kingdoms at the top of each mountain, and what's really going to help that, that king whose, whose feet can be swiped out from under him is if they're able to build themselves a fortress, a castle, something that be able to protect the fact that you can reach up and grab his ankles. And the higher that you build those walls, the safer he's going to be. So which mountain are you building your city upon? Which mountain are you trying to put brick upon brick or snowball upon snowball on? 
Here are the two kingdoms, excuse me, the two, the two cities. First is the unsatisfactory city. That's a fill-in. The unsatisfactory city, kingdom refusal. Hebrews 12, beginning verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they don't escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken. That is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Now, if you've got your Bibles in front of you and you've got some type of cross-references and things, you're going to see this particular section is just riddled with cross-references of making sure the author of Hebrews wants to go back and make sure he's speaking the language that people understand, that he's connecting the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that he's making these connections to say, this is not new material, it's right here in front of you, that this has been foreshadowed. Do not live on mountain religion. You should be living on mountain grace. So what is your city that you are building? And is it shakable? Is your city shakable? What is your primary source of permanence, your source of security? Choosing anything other than Christ is refusal. Circle that in your passages. You can see it shows up multiple times in these three, three verses here. Your refusal to choose Christ. When you put your security, your permanence and source of security, where you get that from, if it's outside of Christ, you are refusing Christ. Each of you has been given and chosen a course in life that you think that will make you happy, that will provide for you, and provide you with peace and permanence and prosperity that you desire. When you're younger, you think that it's getting the degree that you want. You think that it's getting the job that you've always wanted or finding a good marriage or having children. When you get older, it's having enough money in the bank so that you don't have to worry about whether you've got money in the bank. Some of you are dissatisfied with your marriage because you thought that you would put all your eggs in that basket, that if you got married that you'd be able to find a place where you were cherished and accepted and fulfilled, and all of a sudden when those things don't come true, you want out. You see, the unsatisfactory city is located on Religion Mountain. Anything there is unsatisfactory other than absolutely perfect. When I was in the Marine Corps, this was a term that was used often. We said unsat. Well, that's unsat. And the reality was anything less than perfection was considered unsatisfactory, unsat. And the, the, the correlation, if someone says, man, your, your, your cover, your, your uh, camouflage, your, all of those things, if they are set up anything less than perfect, that's unsat. I'll share this with this morning I was talking with Mario, making the connection to, hey, is this a term that you used? Was it just something I used in my, my unit? You know, anytime that our instruments, because I was in the band, anytime our instruments, or our, anytime we sounded less than perfect, I was like, man, that is unsat. And, and, and the connection between that word and like trash, garbage, vile, you know, maggots, all of that, like unsat. Anything less than perfect was unsat. And he says, yeah, I remember that. That was the worst. How many of you here last week, you know what I'm talking about? That was the worst. 
this unsatisfactory city, this kingdom refusal, it says here in Scripture. It's unsat, it's vile, it's less than perfect as long as you're living on religion mountain. There must be a better way. Secondly, there's the unshakable city. The unshakable city. This is a city of kingdom reverence. Verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. What's the city? The city cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably <coughs> with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The crucible that burns everything away and everything that is of no value gets charred and taken away. What's our motivation on Grace Mountain? It is not fear. We say things like, I'm so grateful. I just want to serve and obey because I've been given so much, because I'm already accepted by God. Because I already know my place before God, I just want to serve him with everything that I have. I'm identified with the gospel and all that I have, and God loves me and all of the flaws that I have, all warts and all. He sees my lack of worth, and yet he still died for me. The core of our faith, I believe, the core of my faith, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins on my absolute worst day. That day might be in my past. I hope that it's in my past. But if that day were in my future, if I lost everything, if I failed as your pastor and made a miserable wreck of my life, Jesus Christ died for me on that day as well. I want to live for him. I want to treat others with that type of grace and that type of love and have joy that just overwhelms me. And when you look at people in regards to suffering, that believe in some type of karma in the universe. You just, you just want to say, open your eyes. This cannot possibly be the way that things work. This cannot possibly be true. Why? Because every one of us knows someone who is a good person, a godly person who has lived in, in our eyes a perfect life, and yet they are the ones who are going through suffering. They're the ones going through the rough patch. And we cannot reconcile that through religious terminology on religion mountain. We had a woman in our previous church that we served in in South Carolina. It was a church plant, and she was invested. She was involved, and she did so much for our church. And then we found out that she had Lou Gehrig's disease. And it was just a matter of months. She dwindled away and very soon, very quickly, passed away. At Religion Mountain, you can't reconcile this. You say, that's not fair. God, she gave so much. She has so much value, so much to offer. I, how, how could that happen? Where's the sin in her life? Where's the sin in my life? Where did that come from? That's how you deal with that on Religion Mountain. But on Grace Mountain, Mount Zion, you look at things differently. You say, of Jesus Christ, the most morally perfect man ever to walk the face of the earth, if Jesus Christ, the one who did nothing wrong, if he died a horrific death, then there must be something different going on. If it happened to Jesus, it might happen to me. If it happened to his disciples, those who were as close as could be to him, if they were persecuted for what they believed in, 
If they chased hard after Mount Zion, and yet they still went through intense persecution, then it might happen to me. Maybe it should happen to me. You see, when we live in the unshakable city that is built on Grace Mountain, we worship God, it says here, with reverence and with awe. In the midst of all of that, we revere God and give him all the praise and all the honor and all the glory for everything that happens in our lives. And you know what? Your friends, your families, your neighbors will look at you and say, that is ludicrous. That's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen before. How could you possibly do that? There's a band that I like to listen to. It's a song by Need to Breathe. It's called Happiness. And here's the lines of the song. It says, there's a light I see, but it's far in the distance. So I'm asking you, please show me some forgiveness. It's all for you as I pursue in the pursuit of happiness. In the music video for this song, there's this woman in high heels and a business suit and has a purse over her shoulder, and she is sprinting down the street. Her hair's all over the place. She's running, and she looks idiotic. It says, I'm asking you for some forgiveness because I'm pursuing something else. I'm running after something else. I'm chasing after something else. And it doesn't make sense to you, but it makes sense to me. And I'm chasing after that. And I look like a fool to you. Matthew chapter 5 says, a city on a, a light on a hill cannot be hidden. Is that light on the hill the one that you are pursuing? Can you see it off in the distance? Are you willing to pursue that, chase after that, and look foolish in the process as you pursue city construction at the top of Mount Zion? the mountain of grace. And your friends look at you and they say, that's idiotic. I can't see that mountain. I can't see that place. It seems like a waste of time to me. In your notes you have this statement. It's by Mark Batterson. I like it. It says, faith is the willingness to look foolish. If you aren't willing to look foolish, you're foolish. Faith is the willingness to look foolish. If you aren't willing to look foolish, you're foolish. It seems like the people that God uses are the ones who are willing to climb trees or get out of the boat or go to battle with, a, with Goliath, a giant. Don't tell me that Noah didn't feel foolish while he was building the ark and the rain wouldn't be forecasted for another 120 years. Don't tell me that David felt a little bit foolish running out onto the battlefield, flinging around a slingshot with a rock in it. Don't tell me that one of David's mighty men, Benaiah, didn't feel a little bit foolish chasing a lion into a pit on a snowy day. Don't tell me that the wise men didn't feel a little bit foolish following for years this star and following into Bethlehem when the Jewish, the border agent stopped them there and said, what are you doing? We're here to see the king. We followed the star here. Don't tell me that the professional fisherman, Peter, didn't feel a little bit foolish after all those years he spent on the water, stepping out of the boat so that he could walk on the water to Christ. And don't tell me that Jesus didn't feel a little bit foolish hanging naked on a cross for your sins and for mine. But faith is the willingness to look foolish, and the results speak for themselves. Noah was saved from the flood. David defeated Goliath. The wise men met personally, touched, held the Messiah of the universe. 
Peter walked on water while the rest of the disciples looked at him in shock and awe. And Jesus was raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 127 reveals God's modus operandi. It says this, God deliberately chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. Nothing has changed. If you want unshakable faith, you must choose deliberately the things that cause us to look foolish. As the band comes and we close, what's going on at Religion Mountain is something that we are very comfortable with and used to seeing. Work harder, run faster, do more. What's going on at, at Grace Mountain, Mount Zion, is something we can't quite put a finger on. And we feel foolish doing it. But that is what faith is all about. That is what faith is all about. And it changes the way. You can, you can live on one mountain or the other, but there is no third mountain. There's no in-between. There's no halfway. The author of Hebrews here says that, you, that choosing to not do that is a refusal of Christ. You say, wait a minute, that's not, I, I, I just don't want all of that. I just, I, I'll live a good life, and then, Jesus, you can help me out in the end. He says, no, no, you're refusing me if you refuse the truth of the gospel. These heroes of faith were not afraid to look foolish. Jesus, as he was about to be put on the cross, called together his disciples, and we celebrate communion here, and, and that he looked foolish. What he was demonstrating at that last supper together would be foolish of putting himself up on a pedestal because if it didn't come true, if it hadn't fulfilled itself, he would look like an idiot. He'd spent the last three years kind of building, building a, a group of people who started following him, getting excited about what he was doing, getting excited that he was the Messiah. And yet now he was setting the deck for the fact that he would be killed. He was saying the fact that his blood would be spilled and that his body would be broken for you and for me as we say here in communion. And so as the communion attendees, if you'll come forward as well, and as we pass out communion this morning, we'll be talking through the pieces of that. When you take communion this morning, and communion here is a church, it's a dry communion, it's open to anyone who's a follower of Christ, who's accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. If you're sitting in the row with someone, some of you might literally be doing this, who does not believe the same thing you believe, who does not understand this faith that you have in Christ, and you have some twinge of concern or pain in you that says, that person might think I'm crazy. I'm actually drinking this juice because I think that it represents the blood of Christ that was shed for me. I'm actually eating this bread, and I do believe that it illustrates the body of Christ that was broken for me, a literal person who died for my sins and for every sin in this room. If that doesn't feel a little bit foolish to you, I don't know if you've quite grasped what this idea of the communion meal is really all about. But faith is a willingness to look foolish. So this morning, Lord, I pray that you would help us in that process or that we would not get distracted and caught up at Religion Mountain and building city walls on Religion Mountain, Mount Sinai, Lord, but that we would be building walls and building a city fortress on Mount Zion 
And at times it feels foolish. At times it seems silly and crazy. And yet, Lord, that's what you've called us to. And as people of faith, Lord, we are called to step out and do some foolish things. Seemingly foolish to the world. So I pray this morning as we have a meal together, Lord, that we would uh, be able to just have this moment of thought, this determination of which mountain am I pursuing? Where am I building my city? Is it unshakable? I pray, Lord, you would stir hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.